1: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stigable, the editor of the TLS. Joining me this week is not our cheese-devouring chum, Thea Lenarduzzi, who is otherwise engaged in purchasing large tracts of land in the British countryside. Instead, we have podcast regular, token northerner and indie pop star beyond compare, Lucy Dallas. Lucy, Hello.
2: Hello, thank you for having me. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. You've I'm fine.
1: You, you've been drafted in because Thea is. You make in...
2: her sound like a kind of baron or a, a gentleman farmer purchasing yeah. large. She sent me an email because I sent
1: her this, and she said she sounded feudal. Yes,
2: yeah, she did a bit. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a bit old school. I don't, that's the Henry, the exactly there is something happening. of the Henry VIII. There is something of the Henry Eighth about Thea. Don't you think? Really, very little. Very I little. Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, I remember. If you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions and type pod one in the offer code section, you can get six issues for six pounds. Coming up on the show this week, it has been party conference season here in the UK. I used to have to go to them, sadly, and they are vile, sweaty, hot boxes of political and often sexual frustration, reeking of booze and tribalism. Anyway, what have they revealed about the parlous state of British politics? James O'Brien, my former LBC colleague and peerless student of the game will join us to discuss we shall take full advantage of lucy dallas this week as an arts editor who speaks perfect french lucy don't look at me like that I'm you am making
2: be... a face i you... just like it to be said that i do not speak but you do impress french.
1: me all the time with french idiom what are the two that you've taught me recently think about I pavements
2: possibly do this when there's a french person well, she's not here yet she, she's not here
1: do, do, do the do the do the pavement what's the pavement
2: Oh, la dalle. J'ai la dalle.
1: J'ai la dalle, which means...
2: It means I'm hungry. I'm
1: hungry, but mm-hmm. literally it means I have a pavement.
2: I think so. We can ask Muriel in a second. And
1: what was the other one? The, the other one was really good.
2: N'a pas élevé les vaches ensemble. We didn't... Or garder les vaches ensemble. Or pork. Or, or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or... Or, or les porcs, or les cochons. Yeah, and that it means... It means don't get too familiar. Yeah, we didn't grow up, we didn't grow yeah, up on the farm that, together. That you, can, you can say that if someone's trying to call you tu and you don't want that's to, right it's yeah. very old-fashioned but it's and, lovely and that probably wrong as Muriel will tell us in a moment we're going to
1: find out but I don't think it is and so the idea that if you call a French person two instead of vous they can say we didn't raise cows together yeah
2: we didn't grow up on the farm together mate
1: yeah I love that Love a bit of French idiom. Anyway, which is good because Mirozaga has reviewed Bernard Tavernier's documentary Voyage à travers le Cinéma Français and will be here to talk about what this reveals about French filmmaking. And TLS staffer and Welsh quota filler Samuel Graydon has been to visit the National Poetry Library in Royal Festival Hall to discuss the 50th anniversary of the Poetry International Festival.
2: This week, in our film issue, the critic and writer Muriel Zaga has been watching 40 years of French cinema for us in the shape of Bertrand Tavernier's new film Voyage à travers le cinéma français. A bit like Martin Scorsese's homage to the Italian and American films that influenced him, it includes clips from directors such as Marcel Carné in the 1930s who made Hôtel du Nord, Le Jour Se Lève*, and Les Enfants du Paradis. Alors, je peux m'en aller? Ben oui, vous êtes libre. mieux.
3: Que
2: moi ça, la right the way through to Claude Sauté's Les choses de la vie from 1970.
0: Tu m'aimes parce que je suis là. Mais s'il faut traverser la rue pour me rejoindre, tu as perdu.
2: Muriel, welcome, and thank you for coming, and thank you for your lovely piece. And if, just
1: off-air for agreeing with your French idiom.
2: And, for, and just thank you very much, particularly for that. Exactly.
1: There was a moment any, there where she time. could have said, what are no, you saying? She's completely that. mad. She's made it up. Yeah. Such a
2: power. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wondered if you could tell us, from the point of view of the film, first of all, what kind of director uh, is Tavernier himself, and what is he best known for? Well,
3: Tavernier has been around for a while, and he's sort of woven into the fabric of French cinema, really. So I think he's one of those directors people take for granted. He's, he's sort of part of the furniture. Mm-hmm. He's had a few uh, hits. The greatest hit was probably *And Dimanche à la Campagne in the 1980s. I would say the 1980s was really his era, yeah. which was a lovely sort of impressionistic study of family life. At the turn of the century, it's about a painter and his family in the house in the countryside, and it's very lovely. But he has made. Many different kinds of films. I think he he doesn't feel particularly restricted to any particular genre, so has done science fiction, costume drama set in the Middle Ages but also an adaptation of uh, La Princesse de Montpensier. Is a very eclectic director with a a deep interest in all film.
1: Is that why he's done this? Is this a homage to to the things that inspired him? Yes,
3: I think this is a way for him to... uh, It's a self portrait of Tavernier, the filmmaker and film buff two different kinds of hats because uh, unlike a director like tarantino for example who's forever quoting and referencing the the films he loves tavernier makes his own films tells his own stories and then has this other internal life of uh, film buffdom where he is obsessed with various directors who have shaped him but sort of subterraneously, really so there are no very overt quotes or tributes in his own films yeah but there are certainly a few film godfathers he references in this film and so this is it's really the story of his youth because this this film takes us from the 1940s to the 1970s in terms of decades of french cinema Tavernier promises more I think there will be a, an 8 hour television series Gosh. to cover
2: because <laughs> the documentary is already quite long isn't it The
3: documentary Which, is 3 hours long but yeah. the, of course he's had to edit and um, a lot of people didn't make the cuts but they will they'll come later in the in the next in the next installment we so We've got 8 more this hours to, look forward to This is already it, very is rich this is already is it a fun watch Yes it well you know it's um, my area I mean I would say probably a little bit of previous knowledge of at least some of the most famous directors that are explored in in the film is would be useful, be an idea to watch one or two movies yeah. of that period. Although, if you like film, then it's a fascinating story, and there is something universal about the dynamic between director and scriptwriter, between, you know, the dynamic between actors. Those tensions and love affairs, creative love affairs between people in film, I think, are universal. But in, in this, they are told in French.
2: As you say, he starts from his how he started loving film and his own love affair with it. And he's got some very evocative early memories of going to the cinema. Can you tell us? There's a couple of lovely stories about the cinemas he went to when he was young.
3: Yes, yeah, so this is when he was a schoolboy and and, and uh, lycéen and cutting classes in, in classics, uh, Truffaut-like fashion. Yeah, so yeah. it's a very filmic uh, thing to uh, do anyway, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> in order to go to the cinema instead. And so he grew up in Lyon, and he has fantastic anecdotes about sitting in neighbourhood cinemas in Lyon, places called the El Dorado or the Pate Palace, you know, with names like that. And so there was one place where, in between screenings, uh, uh, a middle-aged stripper would... <laughs> Would get get up off her chair and perform a half hearted routine that's before the next days. screen. You don't, yeah. you don't really get that nowadays, no, most... you know. But
1: um... You just knew there was going to be an older woman. He's going to be as a, as a, as a young French school. You knew an older woman was going to be creeping its way into the story to teach him about life at some point.
3: So that was very exciting, obviously. And then a, a, the most eye popping one for me was he remembers sitting in his seat at the cinema and the man next to him opened a tin of peas. Heated it up, so must have brought oh, with him a small help. camping a yeah. uh, gas ring thing oh, yeah. and then ate, ate it with a spoon out of the tin during the screening. Which, again, is not something you come across very much these days. I think days. we should do that. It's I mean, more
2: think... Popcorn, isn't it, really? Yes. I know, it wouldn't be lovely if someone Nowadays. just did that now. Just no, go, it would go, be go really, really
3: nice, How French to insist on hot food. I know, yeah, and a tin of peas
1: as well. It's there's none of that sort of Americanized junk you get in the cinema. Let's no, have some, you're right. have some proper tin Let's peas. Yes, some veg.
2: They are lovely stories. Uh, and so,
1: what films does he like? Cause it's interesting. He doesn't really. We've got a big piece about Truffaut and, and the new the new wave. That doesn't seem to have made much of an impact on him. Is that is that right?
3: Well, I think it did have an impact inevitably because uh, he he he's the same generation as Godard essentially. And in fact, Godard uh, has said there's a, a line in the film where Godard says, Stephanie and I connect, connect so well because we're both the children of the Liberation after the war and uh, the Cinematheque." So there are uh, points of contact. One of Tavernier's first jobs in film was to be the press agent for Godard's movies, and he does admire him, and also Agnès Varda, who is referenced in the film. But I think because Tavernier is essentially uh, a man of the left who is very much rooted in uh, the working reality of people's lives... There is something a little bit sort of ethereal and shishi about the landscape of the Nouvelle Vague. All those beautiful colours and cars and girls. Where he, I think, he that's not where he gets his nourishment from. I think he finds it all a little sort of shallow does, compared to the preoccupations he has. I does he
1: admire so. the auteur philosophy of the, sort of you know, the sort of the show off where the director is placing his stamp? On on a film.
3: Well, he's himself a fairly self-facing figure, although definitely an auteur, um, uh, who embraces that philosophy, but but not a show off. And it's very telling that this is a self-portrait, but it's it's very it's delightfully free of ego. Actually, it's yeah. really about admiration for other people's work. And. and at very it's very rare that he says and i also of course did this you know he doesn't really name drop his own movies or his own collaborations it's about admiration other people's works uh the uh, the sort of life-giving power of admiration is one of the things he comes back to mm. uh, because there is a, a darker aspect to all this that he doesn't he again in a, that typically self facing way he doesn't tell his own story in detail but the first film he saw when he was a child was when he was recovering in a sanatorium from tuberculosis with a damaged retina permanently damaged retina you know you could mm. read all kinds of things and they are true I'm sure that to be in that position. As a very young child, he was six, see a movie for the first time, be able to see this astonishing, dazzling spectacle that would mark you for life. So I think it's really more of a deeply personal love of images, of the stories of images, a lot less about his own personality.
1: I think it's lovely the idea of, they call them silhouette biographies, where you you reveal a biography by by the things around them. Mm. A sort of silhouette autobiography is kind of a very charming thing yes. is, so here is me, but but through my loves rather than by turning the camera directly on myself.
3: That's it. I mean, the the, the film re- tells you a lot about Tavernier, the man, if you put it all together. You know, and the exclusions that you said. You know, not talking so much about the Nouvelle Vague, but talking about uh, forgotten directors, forgotten movies, uh, films that were salvaged by the skin of somebody's teeth mm. before being melted lost forever you know it's all about that really those are the stories so that i think is what makes him a
2: do you think that ties in with his his um his idea about and that's maybe in a way that the nouvelle vague they were a bit too like you say a bit too chic for him that he's interested in in working people in in kind of real lives and he's looking for, for for what's not necessarily being observed
3: Yes, uh, I think it's it's very interested in the physicality of filmmaking. He's interested in speed. He's interested in the presence of human bodies in the frame and really human interaction, um, and uh, sort of universal stories again of human interaction. That's why I think uh, a lot of the a lot of the actors he he, he talks about tend to be big film stars in France, but also character actors who who yeah. made who made
2: French mm, films what they are. Not, not the great beauties or the very glamorous kind of... Yeah,
3: that's right. So he doesn't talk about Brigitte Bardot, for example, so much, although she's there. Mm. You know, she's there in Le Mépris, so her, more, her most distinguished film. Uh, but but he does uh, talk about Romy Schneider a lot. And Romy mm. Schneider was an, uh, a German actress, really, who became... It's one of those Jane Birkin S- sort of uh, uh, example- Crossover. crossovers yeah. where yeah. someone is really embraced by a different culture you know and Jane Ooh. Birkin is the the, f- the most French English woman you could think of and so Romy Schneider ma- who started her career um, in German uh, crossed over into French and became a big film star but really an ordinary although she was an v- extremely beautiful woman and a very great actress really an, uh, a sort of every woman who, yes. who yeah. again came to play secretaries very ordinary women who worked. yeah
1: There's yep. a great line you quote, and then you quote a lovely line by Italo Calvino as well, which is... Um he was interested in what might be called the, the distinctive atmosphere of French cinema, saturated with pent-up sensuality and a sort of radiant pessimism. It's sort of a grittiness you're talking about here. And then the Italo Calvino quotes, French cinema was heavy with odours, whereas American cinema smelled of palm olive.
3: Yes, well, I think that, you know, that would tessellate with some of the observations Henry Miller makes when he visits Paris and is struck by those smells of women in particular yeah. but also the street a certain kind of grime mm. uh, that is very unamerican uh, that Fr- french cinema's not sanitized in in the same way it has perhaps become more so nowadays although i would say that that distinction still remains I think it
2: is I think there's mm, I think so because it, it, i mean you don't have the french equivalent do you of a hollywood film which is kind of has got no has, is almost frictionless pleases everybody it's all bright and clean i, d- I can't think what the french equivalent to that sort of no, machine I mean, would be even the comedies that will kind of punch you in the gut if they can. That's
3: true, and even the comedies that star great stars, you know, Catherine Deneuve, Daniel Lutt, all the people mm. that are nicely familiar, mm. will often have some sort of plot development that would never get through
1: a Hollywood studio. And yeah. presumably they're more relaxed and have always been more relaxed about sex and, and nudity and things like that. In a way that you have the classic Hollywood image of the the people not being seen having sex but with the the sheets put up to wearing their...
3: wearing their underwear in bed yeah. which is perfectly normal obviously yeah.
1: everybody does. everyone does that and, and then and, <laughs> the, and and the and the sheets up to their necks cool. the, and and yeah. you can't see anything and, yes oh well, the French cinema's never been like that is it it's, if you're going to see something it's there to be seen
3: I think so I think and that that ties up also with a certain attitude to morality not that there's no morality in French cinema there is and in the 30s and the 40s you you can you can see that uh, but it's there it, there's greater comfort in French films, I think, with leaving things a little bit more open-ended and more ambiguous yeah. than would be tolerated, I think, in an in an American film. Of that era and, and even of the current.
1: When era. you see films French films in the thirties and forties, it does it have the buttoned up feel of an of an era that was it, American and British films, you know, you can tell they're never gonna say anything racy, they're never gonna do anything racy. The morality and the censorship that, that bred that morality. It was very, very clear and it's very obvious when you watch it. Was that the same in France, or was it always a more of a um, I, I libertarian? Think it it was
3: almost. It was always more libertarian. I mean, one very good example, and he does, uh, Taviani does flag it up in, in his film, is Hôtel du Nord, where yes. uh, um, Arleti plays, not for the first or last time, a, a prostitute, a fantastic character. Um, and not only is her character funny, has, has her own voice, but also absolutely never judged or belittled because of what she does. It's just taken for granted that in this world, in the world of the story, that is what she does.
2: And she's she's very. No, I watched judgment. a little bit of it the other day before we were talking about this. And and um, she's very outspoken. There's a very famous scene on a on a bridge over the canal, and she really yells at him. He's saying, uh, "Well, you know, this better than me," but he's he's kind of saying, "I've got to get out of here." There's a funny atmosphere around yes. here, yes, meaning she, her because they are together. Because she, it's very claustrophobic, and she really she really bowls him out. It's really good. It's kind of you know it's bracing to watch. And also she's using she's using slang. She's not speaking beautiful proper french she's just really yelling at him and Uh, she kind of storms off and a hollywood
1: film of that era would be very clipped received pronunciation
2: wouldn't it? I think so, and I, and I think also you wouldn't be. I mean, as you say, Muriel, I think you would. If, if somebody was to behave like that, you would sort of disapprove of her, or you'd think, oh, she's the kooky one or something. But no, this was this was the female figure at the centre, and she's really ballsy. She and is. Yes,
3: very. St- I mean, strong female characters, considering you know. And it's not know. that you kind of morally
2: approve or disapprove. It's, it, it's just that's that's who she is. She's there, and it's still very strong. That mm. Film.
1: Just finally, uh, Muriel, if having seen this. Um, Trot through forty years of French film. Were there any films that it, that you could recommend to people listening to this who doesn't know, don't know very much about French film? Mean, go and go and see this as an as a as a, a, an example of the sort of cinema we've been talking about.
3: Picking a favourite, if you can hunt it down, because there. Okay, there's one that's perhaps easier to get hold of than the other. The one that's probably easier to get hold of than the other is Les choses de la vie. Is the is the mm. so Claude Sautet is one, the Uh, the director he explores towards the end of the film who was most productive in the 60s and 70s and worked with Romy Schnader worked with the wonderful Michel Piccoli Specifically, in the film called Les Choses de la Vie, um, uh, I'm not quite sure how it's been translated. If it's been translated, I don't know actually. I but it's it's a film about an things architect who things of life. Things of life. Things yeah. of life. Very <laughs> French title. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. All, <laughs> the things be, of life. That could be
1: all French cinema, couldn't it? We've <laughs> yes. It, the things Stuff. of life. Yeah. In
3: the things of life, uh, the, an architect played by Michel Piccoli is typically, for a French movie, torn between his wife and his mistress has to make a choice between the two he's driving his car he crashes his car and then the film follows his internal monologue as he remembers parts of his life still wrestling with the decision it's fantastic it's one of those films that's always on french television and so is incredibly underrated so worth worth getting the dvd if possible lovely
1: lovely thank you so much indeed We're living in a political paradox, a time of tremendous violent change in terms of our tribal and national identities and oddly stable support for the two main parties. Most polls have the Tories and Labour taking around 40% of the vote each, with Labour, despite evident Tory crises, only edging slightly ahead, if at all. So did the party conferences reveal anything? On the Tory side, it perhaps most strikingly revealed a sort of limped, resigned somnolescence and absence of ideas or excitement a conference best symbolized by a coughing prime minister and a sign behind her behind her dropping letters as if they represented the will to live in labor we saw triumphalism excitement the spectre of quondam enemies of jeremy corbyn like the once proud tom watson crooking the knee and abasing themselves before the all-conquering demigod of the left. Meanwhile, Brexit means perhaps that none of this matters. As James O'Brien puts it succinctly, in short, a Remainer compelled to wear the clothes of a lever leads the government, while a lifelong lever holding the hopes of Remainers in his hands heads the opposition. What a mess. James O'Brien joins Lucy and me now. James, Welcome. Thank you. Let's begin at the Tory conference before we head south to Brighton. All the talk was of May's clunker of a, of a speech. But you think, and I think you make a very persuasive argument, it slightly distracted from the message itself, which was perhaps more troubling.
4: Yes, it, it, remarkable really to, to reflect that the woman who was responsible for the go-home vans for the, according to Vince Cable, the suppression of nine separate reports um, uh, rubbishing the notion that immigration has had a negative impact on on wages and employment, and of course the one who still sees the European Union citizens living here as bargaining chips, um, whatever she may have said to the contrary, tried to establish herself as a sort of uh, inclusive liberal. Um, it, it tallies with this audit the Cabinet Office have undertaken of of, of of sort of race relations, but there's no money behind it and no real I don't think will behind it, so having failed to really propel herself to whatever the next stage is by embracing nativism and riding that rather ukipi tiger that she appeared to be on top of when she was doing that brexit means brexit the no deal is better than a bad deal she, she's now taken almost a, a complete 180 you said if you actually read the speech and you have to read it because god knows how anyone could sit through listening to it again but if you read the actual speech it's it's, maybe it's as if there were two Theresa mays but to her I think, good fortune, nobody seemed to notice.
1: But she's done this before, because remember when she became Prime Minister, she gave that speech on the steps of Downing Street where she effectively lifted the policy position of Ed Miliband. And she talked about this great, you know, just about managing that came out of that speech and caring about people. And at a time when some sort of radical solutions are necessary for society, that looked like she was beginning a journey in that direction and then stopped almost immediately. I wonder if you
4: touched on it there with the phrase radical solutions in that her heart may well place, although a lot of people would take a lot of persuading of that, um, not just on the on the sort of immigration issues, but also on some of the benefit sanctions, some of the other issues she presided over at like the Home Office, the, the, the detention centres, that sort of thing. But I, I, I'm a little bit more, I suppose she's a vicar's daughter, I should say, a little bit more Christian about it. And I think perhaps she does believe um, what she says on these issues, but hasn't got a scooby-doo how to actually deliver it. And when ambition comes up against expectation, uh, that's when she appears to have little choice but to completely change horses.
1: What do you think of Boris? Um... Not personally. I mean, we could we could do a whole podcast on what you think of <laughs> Boris personally. Yeah, you don't even like. Yeah, we couldn't even call him Boris. Boris <laughs> it's Johnson. It's too friendly.
2: It's too chummy. It's too to Boris, chummy. I agree with you. That's I very agree much agree what he wants you. us to say. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Boris.
1: Jo- uh, the scheming of Boris Johnson. What the What 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 happened at conference, and also the sort of ridiculous newspaper articles he writes, primarily for the for the Telegraph. Where yes. and then he immediately denies that they mean anything. He sort of said so he writes this sort of policy thing about Brexit, and then when people say. You You look like you're mounting a challenge to your leader and 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 pimping yourself out. He says, "Oh no, I'm not." What's he up to? Does he know what he's he's up to?
4: He's demonstrating two things: complete contempt for the electorate, which has always served him well, and also a a belief that he and he alone can get away with murder, can get away with flip-flopping, can get away with having his cake and eating it. And you know, he's still favourite among Conservative Party rank and file to, to to take over from Theresa May. So. I I don't know whether I'd go so far as to say he knows what he's doing. I think it's more a case of he's doing all he knows.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's also a kind of faux demure aspect here for him because if you had to say... There's two problems for the Tory uh, membership. Arguably, A, they're, terror- they're hostage to their own weakness, aren't they? Because if they get rid of Theresa May, there May will have to be an election which they'll lose. And yes. secondly, if they well, get rid of... possibly
4: they'll, t- they'll lose it. They, they think they might. That's exactly but
1: they, 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 they might, exactly. And then yes. we'll talk about that in a moment, I suspect. But the second thing is, if they got rid of her, if the best they can do is a plot led question. by Grant yeah. Shapps, yeah. Yeah. which That's, is the yeah. very definition of a mediocre attempt to do anything. I mean, it couldn't be more mediocre... What, they don't really have any options, do they?
4: I don't think they do, and, and it's almost like everybody is waiting to see what happens next. There's this sort of, I think, entirely forlorn hope that there might be some sort of rabbit pulled out of the Brexit hat in, in the next few months. And, and similarly, I suppose if that happens, then it shores up Theresa May for for a little bit longer. But if the if the Conservatives felt that they had a, a viable option who would give Jeremy Corbyn something close to a pasting in the general election, Theresa May's feet wouldn't touch the ground. The fact that the parliamentary party clearly don't think that that's Boris Johnson, and he's also, I think, made quite a lot of enemies, uh, well, at best alienated people, at worst made enemies of them, I um, right. is, is, is stymieing his absolutely unvaunted. I mean, his ambition is, is, is without bounds, isn't it? But the, the, the fact that he needs support to get the top job probably explains why he's sort of just um, pirouetting all the time in the hope of of picking up an audience.
1: Let's go to Labour then, because if you saw the the conference, it it Mm. was this tremendous coronation of uh, and sort of sanctification of Jeremy Corbyn. But what struck me, I don't know if it struck you as... Although everyone's opinion of Corbyn has changed, he has changed as well. It's not just their view of him. His view of himself has changed. He's smartened up. he It's more professionally handled. It's more hard-hitting in the sense that he cares about message in a way yeah. that he was never going to be your typical sort of politician. But in some ways, he's become a bit of a typical sort of politician because he cares about all that surrounding stuff do you think that's right
4: without jettisoning anything that's probably
1: an important caveat
4: i think you're absolutely right he is prioritizing the pursuit of power in a way that his detractors never thought he would um be capable of doing i I suspect he was probably as surprised as anybody else by the general election result but what it means is that now when he turns up on stage at conference he he is genuinely looking like a, a prime minister in waiting and according to that he's He's cut his cloth, he's he's scrubbed up, and he's also, I think, very cleverly, although again, this is business as usual and and cynical politics, he's he's avoiding showing too much of what it is with regard to Brexit, they probably don't know, but in other areas, he's not giving detail, he's not giving them an opportunity to start tugging at the loose thread and watching the whole thing fall apart, which was perhaps a mistake that him and people like Diane Abbott made in the uh election campaign why would you i mean look at what's happening look at the numbers albeit that there's an unexpected stagnancy post-conference but generally speaking he was it was 20 odd points out before when the election was called and, and now it's you know at the very worst from his point of view it's now neck and neck so I, yeah. I think just keep giving them what they want and don't 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 rock the boat which is of course the opposite of what he was supposed to represent when he when he first the leadership.
2: I suppose also that since the Tory party does seem to be more or less in disarray if he just stands still and doesn't muck anything up he looks very very good just by doing that.
4: You're absolutely right in relief to the Conservative party he does but in relief to to again a theoretical figure as we said about the Tories if there was someone around whom the, the more passionate Remain contingency could coalesce. If, 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 look, if Labour had a profoundly charismatic leader at the moment who could speak to people who uh, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn is ever going to quite reach, then it would, be as, it would be as exciting as seeing the Tories have a proper rival to Theresa May coming up on, on the outside lane. So they're both almost sort of paralysed by their position. But personally, I'd much rather be in Jeremy Corbyn's position than Theresa May. Well,
1: indeed, the last thing that he wants, arguably, is government. If there is a snap election in the next three months and Labour got in, It would be disastrous for him and for the party because their split on Brexit, which is uh, as if not more significant than the Tories, would be raised. And no one wants to preside over the Brexit of the next two to three to four to five to however many years. If you were advising Jeremy Corbyn, you'd say, for God's sake, pray not to get into power in the next uh, short term future.
4: I think this distorting lens of Brexit absolutely, absolutely defines everything. And and, I mean, Theresa May theoretically doesn't want to be in power either, but she's clinging on by her fingertips and would probably chalk it up to to a sense of duty. I don't think Jeremy Corbyn has that because duty involves sustaining the status quo, whereas Corbyn's appeal hinges almost entirely upon challenging the status quo having said that be careful what you wish for you know maybe there is a rabbit to be pulled out of a hat at some point in the next six months maybe corbyn's position maybe he's peaked so on the other hand they might be thinking we'll never have a better position from which to fight a general election and then left with the question as you always are and corbyn seems to be different from other politicians of whether actually just simply getting hold of um, uh, number 10 is more important than anything that happens afterwards, uh, which I would loosely describe as the Boris Johnson position.
1: Brexit, I mean, we know it's not going to happen until 2021 because of the, there's going to be a two-year transition oh, period. Yeah. We don't know what it's going to transition to. I've got this sad vision, James, uh, that this operation kind of status quo, we spend millions of pounds, millions of man hours trying to have something that ends up, just slightly worse economically than we have now and that's kind of the best case scenario the best case yeah, scenario I'd I take that uh, yeah, yeah so
2: would I I think that would be but, that, would, that would be quite a good outcome but at one level
1: it's just the most kind of it's like a, a piece of absurdist performance art isn't it mm-hmm. that we're going to end up in a situation where we have to get close to the single market so we have to accept a certain amount of eu regulation and interference that we so stridently resist the world requires rules and and supranational state court like things to to govern them we want fair trade deals all of that stuff we're gonna we're gonna disentangle for the purpose of re-entangling in a slightly worse way over a five-year period
4: yes but you're doing that thing that involves sort of evidence detail and 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 rationality and i I find it very difficult to discuss the opposite camp without falling foul of all of those um hackneyed accusations of condescension and sneering and all that sort of thing but you can't reason people out of a position that they haven't been reasoned into which is why these bovine slogans like taking back control and we've got our country back and brexit means brexit resonates so successfully because they they excuse people from the business of thinking and the more thinking that you do the more your analysis becomes irresistible
2: it's also i have to say i feel um very sorry for anyone in the civil service who's gonna oh, spend okay. the next four years, as you say, Sig, unpicking, and yep. then picking again, but worse. Meanwhile, yep. working presumably every hour, God sends. Um, you're quite right. Yes. I mean, that's you know, there won't be the greatest casualties in the whole thing. This this is just a. Can and they'll of, probably you know. end
4: up carrying the can because yes, the, probably the yeah. people who won't carry the can are the people that have led us to this. So the EU will be blamed I'm... for intransigence. Remainers will be blamed for somehow sapping morale. Moaning civil civil by moaning. Be yeah. Absolutely, all of this, but none of the people who said it was going to be brilliant will be responsible when it turns out to be anything but with the obvious parenthesis that please God it, it does turn out better than any of us expect
1: well and I think but I've been talking to people inside government and in the in the civil service and um, and it's not an ideological question look and I we've discussed this before James but I can buy a notion of Sovereignty as an ideal, I can buy the of idea course. that we should be able to get rid of politicians who do who, who cause problems in certain areas, and if, if certain decisions are being taken outside of our sovereign control, that's a legitimate idea to to debate about and pursue. But yes. on the pure pragmatism, that's the thing that, that that I find most frustrating. You talk to civil servants if you were trying to merge two companies or demerge yeah. two companies, it's a vast amount of work that yeah. takes years and years and years and you've got to be very serious of it. And it's that oh, magnified don't so, by... Don't be so
4: downbeat. Don't pull the country down, Sig. <laughs> don't it's be, all saboteur. Going to be fine. And that would have passed a satire six months ago, but now it is pretty much an impression of Liam Fox and David Davis. Yeah. They, they yeah. just still seem to be blithely suggesting that anybody's suggesting that... I think the line I used in the last piece I wrote for you was was withdrawing the eggs from a baked cake, yeah. and you know that, that they insist on pretending that it's not it's not like that at all.
1: Let's move away off Brexit just just finally because I'm interested in where you think the country is politically because I have in my mind this view that we're finally seeing the consequences of the. 2008 banking crisis. We're finally yeah. seeing the legacy of that. And you weirdly you'd expect that to have hit the 2010 election. It didn't. The 2015 election it didn't. And then we kind of assumed or I naively assume, well maybe it's never going to hit. But it's, it feels to me that we are seeing the consequences of that writ in the political system and that may be shifting politics centre of gravity leftwards. Do you think that's correct? Uh,
4: yeah, I mean I, I think in the sense of we can't carry on like this. And yeah. that perhaps was brought into sharper relief by the financial crisis. And without being repetitive, obviously the Brexit stuff distorts anything that attempts to be an overview of that kind of thing. But the the notion of nationalisation is profit, isn't it? And, and what the financial crisis proved was what happened when profiteering goes unchecked you know you can use whatever trendy word you want to describe toxic capitalism or crony capitalism there's nothing wrong with capitalism as long as some of the profits make their way back into the people generating the profits and some of the money makes its way back into the businesses for growth and research and development what we saw in the banking crisis is what happens when it's all about shoveling as much cash out of the pockets of ordinary people into the pockets of very rich people that you can do so yes i think that explains why there's an enthusiasm for nationalization why there's an enthusiasm for redistribution of wealth, the notion that the state has to play a role in this. If you somehow don't get a, 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 a berth on the gravy train, then it must somehow be your fault. That seems to me to be expiring. But again, you know, I, I hesitate to put money on anything at the moment that, that passes for an overview.
1: Well, what it seems to me to, to say at the very least is that that scenario fits a Jeremy Corbyn View Very much. Of the world. So. And he means it.
4: Don't forget that. This is the drum he's been beating for the best part of four decades. So no one could accuse him of opportunism. <laughs> but, the ch- but I
1: guess the challenge is for, for them, this is why what people wanted from, if you're a conservative, what you wanted from Theresa May's speech and the conference generally was this excited moment of recalibrating yes. what conservatism, what the other side of the ball might look yes. like as a way of answering those problems. And that to me is, it feels where they seem to lack any invention or any energy
4: yes well but again i I mean what can she do when the 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 infighting is magnified beyond all recognition by the fact that brexit is looming behind her every
1: single thing she can't she how can she
4: lay out a vision of of social inclusion or a return to one nation values when we don't even know whether the one nation that we've currently got is going to survive Brexit? when you look at the irish border yes i was going to say it's one nation that could be shrinking Within within you know five or six years,
1: everything comes back to to Brexit. It just
4: it? does, <laughs> and I, I know it's repetitious and, and arguably dull, but it's just true well, it must kill you, it.
1: James, doing it every day on the radio. I just think that the I problem because should... it's every guess because you can't really, as you say, we've demonstrated you can't really do anything without Brexit's shadow looming over it in some respect or others.
4: I know I, I, I'm I'm trying to work out how you do this thing of putting your fingers in your ears and, and, and pretending that it isn't. Looming over everything. Yeah. Ask the it, it, people it, it,
2: um, negotiating for Brexit. as the three musketeers. They're pretty good at it. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, they are, aren't they? And, and that, that has to be the next chapter, doesn't it? One of them has to either fall under the wheels of the £350 million bus or, or, or kind of
1: Oh, no. Or, dr- or drive it heroically into the sunset, is what they would believe. But <laughs> I think that, that,
4: Oh, what a sign to be alive. I know that. You know, I, I now know why the Chinese proverb always says, may you live in interesting times. I never really understood why that was a curse before. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> won't, pe- won't people think of the poor radio host who I've got to talk about this all the time? You're the true victims of, uh, of Brexit. <laughs> yeah, thank you, exactly. Yeah, that. Finally. <laughs> James O'Brien, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. So it all comes back to Brexit again. But did you buy the fact that... We're shifting centre
2: left. I don't know. I think that the party, the Labour Party, is much more unified now, obviously, than it was last year, and they're all terribly happy about that, which is they're all chanting and singing, and that's fine. I'm not sure if they have persuaded the rest of the country. But even even if they had, and even if everyone had gone terribly left wing and we started renationalising everything, then you have still got Brexit there. So you still got. You, I don't see how we could get on with that programme. Well, arguably,
1: well, there's an argument that you need Brexit to re-nationalise properly because uh, European Union uh, rules require there to be um, market competition. But you can't do Biden's anything
2: until it's actually done. No, and actually, so I, and, I'm, be I'm,
1: stuck. and I'm talking about anyway, but, you know, as I said at the very beginning, 40-40, you know, 40% of the country yeah. votes Tory at the minute. And, in fact, the last election, 43% voted Tory and 41% voted Labour. That's an incredibly high number. So yeah. although it feels like the centre of gravity might be shifting left, you could make it a case, in fact, there is no centre of gravity yeah. anymore. You're either on the side of one or the side of the other. That, that kind of middle ground that was up for grabs
2: Yes, which Blair is, Exactly, which is where, where, where Tony Blair was. I mean, and it's like the referendum. It's like the Brexit referendum. It's like the Scottish referendum. It's like, you know, they're, they're, they're close, The numbers seem to be staying about the same, which is a a, a bit of a bind. And they're
1: binary, that's the other thing. They're close in numbers, but they're poles apart. And it's becoming more
2: tribal, which I think is a problem. Yeah.
1: That was cheery then. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Sorry about that. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
1: The TLS's very own Samuel Graydon has been sent from the imposing towers here to visit the National Poetry Library, cited in the Royal Festival Hall. There he spoke to Chris McCabe, the librarian and poet in his own right, about the 50th anniversary of the Poetry International Festival, which was set up by Ted Hughes in 1967. Sam talked to
6: Chris about the festival, but began by asking about the library itself. The library was set up in 1953 by the Arts Council uh, and the idea was that it would be a place where people could come and find out about what was happening in poetry, um, so it was opened in by T.S. Eliot um, wow, he, okay. did, he did a speech at the time but annoyingly what he said was never saved Right. Um, okay. <laughs> so um, we, we don't really know what he said but he obviously thought it was a good thing because he came out that day and, uh, and opened it um, so the library had different homes across London it was based in Earl's Court for a while Piccadilly, Covent Garden um, and they came here to South Bank Centre and by the time the library came here in 1988 the Poetry International Festival had been going for quite some time. It had been set up in 67. But it had kind of lapsed and it had stopped and started the festival. Okay. Uh, and it was 1988 where the festival relaunched with a new focus. Yeah. And that was at the exact moment when the library had come to the centre as well. So there was a kind of a, a nice sense of, of coming together of these different poetry kind of uh, uh, traditions and institutions, if you like. And you
7: said 67? Poetry International, which yep. turns 50 this year. That was set up by Ted Hughes, I think.
6: That's right, yeah. So um, Ted Hughes was the director, but well, actually only for a very short period. Right. In the years running up to Poetry International, uh, Ted Hughes had been behind a magazine called Modern Poetry and Translation, which he co-edited with Daniel Weisbord. And it was part of this interest that he had in international poetry and bringing poets together from around the world. So we can start to... Think think about uh, the tensions and the problems in the world through the lens of poetry and what what that might be able to do in in terms of bringing people together Uh, and and sharing a a common language of poetry actually Mm. was one of his big uh, aims. Ted actually soon relinquished his directorship uh, because... Um, the Poetry Book Society were very keen that people should come to the festival and that there would be an audience. Of course, um, <laughs> but that wasn't really was <laughs> that wasn't really um, of so much interest to to to, to himself. So much as um, you know, kind of bringing the, the best poets from uh, across Europe, you know, across yeah. the, the Cold War divide was really his aim.
7: Hughes' aim was a political kind of statement about poetry and its possibility for bringing people together yep has that aim developed over the years
6: well it's um, you know we've been um really digging through the archives. Um, for the fifty year anniversary we've got an exhibition which happens in the National Poetry Library and the South Bank Centre's archive studio. And uh, so we're going to be showing that's
7: coming up on the weekend.
6: No? That's coming up about the weekend of the festival, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, people will be able to come in and really dig into, you know, the uh, the history of the festival and the kind of major moments of the festival. But uh, yeah, you know, his aim, said Hughes's aim was to um, you know to bring people together to bring poets together mm. uh, he said um, poetry is a universal language in which we can all hope to meet whether or not the festivals achieve that I, I think depends on which uh, version of the festival you look at what was happening at the time uh, in fact the first festival was uh, criticized by a black poet James Berry for, for not including enough black poets right. so the so 67 that was the 67 mean. one and you know throughout the different incarnations of the festival you can see that um, sometimes it's been more politically driven than others right. often there's a lot of UK poets Auden appeared a lot in the early festivals uh, when we get to the 90s we see a lot of the new generation poets appearing Ann Duffy, Simon Armitage mm. always offset with um, poets who, who, who've who been invited from other countries but sometimes the political impetus has perhaps been less sharp than others and I really think the last um since 1988 really we've seen more of a focus more of an engagement with with world politics through the festival but particularly since 2010 I think with an engagement around um, issues in the Middle East um, Afghanistan for example Um, the festival organisers have really endeavoured to show the problems that are existing through the world and how the poets in those communities are very much on the ground addressing those issues um, and it's a chance for, for us to understand what those issues are, but also what poetry can say about them, what poetry can, right. can do with those issues. You know, that, that, that's really the, the driving force, I'd say, of the festival now.
7: And I noticed on the weekend you have another event um, which talks about how poetry has changed over 50 years. Yeah. And so we have the festival changing and becoming more political. Would you say that that's reflected in the poetry that you're drawing to the festival? Is it a more political kind of poetry you're aiming for?
6: Yes, I think it is. We have a number of really key events happening at this year's festival. Um, We've got an event on eco-poetry, which is bringing together poets who are addressing the environment and climate change. That's one one event. We've got an um, an event which is called... uh, uh, home is the mouth of a shark, which is about refugees. it's about um, right. you know movement um you know from different different countries, either enforced or through or through choice but again poets you've, you've had to leave the home uh, and how um, that comes through their poetry as a as a major kind of um, theme of what what they think their poetic mission is to achieve and it's about it all we've got this theme of endangered languages. So uh, the National Poetry Library, we've launched the Endangered Poetry Project. And we are trying to collect poems in endangered languages um, because languages are dying out uh, at a phenomenal rate. Indeed, yes. Um, you know, one every two weeks, according to UNESCO. Uh, and half the world's languages will be lost by the end of the century. Right. And with that, obviously, goes the, the poems that have been written in those languages and what they can tell us about, about humans throughout the world. Uh, so we launched this uh, project on National today And over the last week already, we've been... Uh, receiving poems from the public in F- Faroese, Alsatian Breton oh, wow. um, and that we're going to be able to show these poems um, what we've had so far in the exhibition and we've also got um a brilliant event called 7000 Words for Human which um, shows uh, four commissions by major international poets to write a poem in an endangered language that they know and um, working with our translator in residence Stephen Watts he's going to make an English version so we can get a sense of those those issues that mm-hmm. are running through those poems.
7: Talking about the archive briefly <laughs> you've brought some stuff from the archive for me to see which I'm quite excited about yeah um, so if you can. Show me those things that'll be wonderful
6: Yes, yeah, so what you can see here is the brochure for the very first. Poetry International Festival, oh, um, wow. <laughs> and uh, you can see it's got a very kind of almost psychedelic kind of design. It does, so it, yes, kind yeah, so of fits in with the uh, like some kind of Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, <laughs> it does look like a poster for a Jimi Hendrix gig. Uh, Hendrix never appeared, but um, oh, nice. a number of great poets did. Um, just looking through the names, yeah. um, you I know, can see po- Berryman. John yeah. Berryman uh, came to the festival. Allen Ginsberg came to the festival he was actually photographed outside the Queen Elizabeth Hall with a huge um, God's Eye it was called and kind of Mexican medallion <laughs> that he had around his neck um, which looked quite odd because he was wearing a suit at the time oh, of course. yeah, yeah so, <laughs> um, and Charles Olsen came the American experimental poet all six foot eight of him Wow! and um, he chose to sit on the steps leading down to the Q- Queen Elizabeth Hall stage rather than go on the stage he was being quite, quite awkward and uh, a, a difficult let but he went up and he read, he did a brilliant reading. Auden came, Auden was um WH Auden was a, a fixture throughout As you say, actually yes. the, the the festivals um, in those early years. You know, you can easily on the one sense you, you can be kind of um, struck just by how amazing it is to bring these the, these names that we all know from the from poetry's past together. But it's you know very male that goes. You it know, is, We nice. have there. a few women, but yeah, we have a few women. Uh, although I've got a um, somebody at the festival um, actually uh, kept a scripted um, run through of what actually happened at the, at this first event. Um, and you can see uh, one of one of the women, um, Anne Sexton, American. Uh, yes, which she, she never actually made it to the festival. She was supposed to, but she never she never read. Um, so that so that was one of the uh, one of the three women I think kind of uh, <laughs> yes. disappeared right away. And it, you know it was a very very white festival as well. So um, yes, hence y- the criticism. Yeah, hence the criticism at the time. So. Um, that one's too. I've got this LP from the nineteen sixty nine festival.
7: Yes, I know.
6: You've got a whole collection of LPs. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, v- vinyls coming back in, and mm. uh, luckily we've <laughs> held onto ours at the National Poetry <laughs> Library. Um, and you can see there's this gathering on the what I think is the Queen Elizabeth Hall Reef of um, again all male poets. Unfortunately, uh, oh. Ogden Nash, W. H. Auden, um, Derek Walcott. Um, and they're having a glass of wine, kind of mulling over the state of the world, we hope. We hope, um, it, yes. Yeah, <laughs> at, the, at least their view, their view of it. Um, but it caused a lot of controversy those first few years. Um, there's uh, an article actually from the TLS in the. Oh, wonderful! Ni- n- Nineteen sixty-seven, which um, which talks about what happened. Um, and it, it says, the organisers of Poach International 67 could hardly have hoped for a better publicity boost than they received from Donald Davies' eccentric outburst and The Guardian just three days before last week's festival was due to open. Go home, Octavia Path snarl the scandalized professor go home every good poet who has been Lord to London this week and um what, what Donald Davy was set against like a lot of people at, at the time was um, was the pointlessness of live readings this was quite a new thing oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, we would had the incarnation at the Alba Hall a few years before the famous gathering where um, poets like Alan Ginsberg and um, uh, Adrian Henry appeared on stage but this was still quite a new thing and a lot of people just couldn't see how couldn't see uh, the point, had I not mean. <laughs> uh, see the point What what's it got to do with poetry poetry is what you get in books poetry is what you read on the page um, so you know it was kind of a transitional point for poetry I guess we're so used now to poetry being a spoken indeed, thing a performance yes. thing um, but the, the establishment of this festival was really part of that move towards I guess the cultivation of the personality yes, um, the sound of the voice the movement on stage the live audience yeah. which we now know doesn't detract from the page it's it's another way of experience yeah, and contemporary. Of presenting poetry.
7: yeah yep. and also quite a, a good engagement of the public and I guess that's what the festival's about as well as drawing yep. people into poetry
6: yeah absolutely yeah and I think what's been um, I mean what I've said makes it sound like a really dry kind of um, <laughs> you know serious oh. kind of uh, thing and it was you know in its intentions but when you look at the festival through the years there have been um, lots of participatory events um, you know, lots of fun events in um, 19. I think it was 1972. Um, Dame Edna Everage came <laughs> to do a, to do an event on um, Australian kind of naive verse, if you like. You know, um mm, kind of poems yeah. that had just been written by 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 people who weren't necessarily poets. Um, and uh, Barry Humphries, who of course is um, the other half of Dame <laughs> yeah, Edna yeah, Everage, so yeah, uh, the other half. Uh, yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, they came on. He was on stage, and the person who introduced it said. um you can see Barry Humphries is here, but there you met the has actually gone to the Royal Albert Hall because she couldn't believe that any venue that had less than 6,000 seats could be the right venue for her to be performing <laughs> it. Sure enough, by the second half of the event, she's appeared. Um, <laughs> and she read some um, very funny and strange things, including a, a poem called Pig Face, which uh, <laughs> is uh, not what you've got in mind when you see the kind of uh, yes. <laughs> first, okay. first kind of uh, visions of what the festival would be. But of course, you know, it's got to engage people who are are at different levels with poetry, who have Mm. uh, different expectations. Um, And, you know, I think um, there has been a strand of of, of fun, actually, and humour running through the festivals since those early days.
7: Oh, good, good. It's nice to know that it's not
6: all. Yeah, no, come along and you'd be surprised. There's lots of fun things happening.
7: We've looked at the past. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, What do you see as the future for the festival? Where do you see... It
6: developing, you know, in a really straightforward way, it will reflect more aspects of, of humanity. You know, it's mm. not um, about Asian white like men. It's it's no. it's gonna it's gonna be about anybody living breathing and writing poetry or or wanting to read poetry you know it's a festival that is for everyone Mm. um and that really reflects in this year's program as well um the big highlight gala event uh, which will close the uh, the festival the unmissable event i'd say is the world poetry summit um and this is on the um, sunday the 15th of october and um We're we're gathering together some of the most exciting radical poets who are writing at the moment. So we've got Claudia Rankin, who um, many people know has written a book called Citizen, which um, investigates the the, the kind of microaggressions and and hidden racisms that are Mm. um, are, are occurring in society. She's going to come and read from that book for us. Um, We've got Anne Carson, a wonderful, inventive, poet Indeed, who, yes. yeah, often crosses across mediums and forms and challenges our expectations of, of what poetry is and what it can be. Um, and we have Joy Harjo, who um, is uh, a poet who, who has been commissioned as well to write a poem from here. Um, native language uh, Muscovy, and she's going to um, read for us live on stage as well. She's an incredible performer. She often includes music in her performance as well. Mm. Um, so we've got this real mix of different approaches to poetry, mm. um, different styles, and I think you know that's what the future of the festival is about. It's about in- including um, just this um, various art that poetry is. The kind yeah. of the, the the plurality of what can be done in it um you know there's no rules at all in poetry and i think any no. any ideas we had um even over the last few decades uh, uh, of uh, what poetry might be expected to do have mm. been ripped up and rewritten by poets over the last 10 years
1: chris mccabe talking to sam graden that's all we have time for this week our thanks go to sam graden and chris mccabe mural Zagger and james o'brien lucy yes, have you had fun
2: of course apart from all
1: the politics is a bit depressing but politics is depressing but French cinema is, is that always, depressing? no it's not
2: depressing there's, probably there's gloomy
1: aspects to but it it's very stylish it is stylish <laughs> it is. I, I got the sense from it's that it's
2: enjoyable even if it even when it is a bit bleak
1: even if people are shrugging and saying
2: boff boff yeah which they are
1: yeah. has anyone in France ever said bof in reality? all the time Bof.
2: all the time it's a real thing Yeah.
1: it's not a cliche
2: well I mean it is also a cliche if I was having is. a dispute
1: with a French person and they know boff that would be normal
2: well, it's not so much... It's more like, you know, if you, if you said, do you want the green one or the blue one? And you went, boff. But, know, it's but that, you would say kind of, boff. Yeah, I absolutely would say boff. Yeah. Boff.
1: Do you go to thestls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the paper, which is full of film, including a profile of gun-toting Charlton Heston and the story of five women writers who changed the world. Do join us next week when Theo will probably be back and we shall discuss matters artistic as part of an art history special of the paper. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact...